So, hey, today, guys, we're doing a podcast and we're going to be talking about PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder. I think the point of this episode is for us to kind of put out our experiences and how we look at post-traumatic stress and get rid of a lot of the stereotypes or rid a lot of the stereotypes that are typically associated with soldiers and PTSD and really try to educate you on our personal experiences in the realm of veteran affairs and the shit show that it is and also give anybody out there advice on maybe working through these issues that might be a veteran might be ems might be first responder and try to have an open and frank conversation about it also we'll talk about a question that i was given on a direct message from a guy named ryan from new hampshire who asked about dogs and you know how they could be utilized in training with gear used for protection, et cetera, which is, it's a, a pretty cool, it's legit, a, a pretty cool thing to uh, discuss. So looking forward to this episode. I hope you guys get a lot out of it. All right, so PTSD, there's a lot of, I don't know, misperceptions, I think, about PTSD and what uh, the diagnosis for a lot of veterans means really for society. Your dad, Vietnam vet, right? Yeah. My stepdad's a Vietnam vet as well. And Vietnam veterans make up the majority of the statistic that you've heard of 22 people killing or 22 veterans killing themselves every single day. And it's because of literally the failures. Now, I wouldn't say its sole source is the failures of the mental health system. I would say, generally speaking, overall, it's a failure of society for us to recognize mental health issues that exist, I think, in everybody. One, one of the things that I've, I've done in really my research for my own education and under, trying to understand mental health processes uh, to self-improve myself as well as understand what others are going through is when you look at um, therapy, when you look at potential solutions in mental health, they're, they're generally not specific and they're they're generalized across the board and i think that's one of the first problems that that we have in the healthcare system yeah i think the the diagnosis of ptsd across the board for combat vets is uh one it gets it gets thrown out a lot um in a in kind of a weird way that um, it doesn't define a lot of things right it just covers this broad spectrum of of different things uh, which is kind of a weird phenomenon really it, it it's funny because when you when you look at PTSD, for example, talking about the symptoms of PTSD, and it, it breaks it down into ten common symptoms associated with PTSD, post traumatic stress. One is physical pain, you know, whether it's physical ailments such as migraines, dizziness, fatigue, just common things that happen to you physically. Two is nightmares or flashbacks. It's very common with those who suffer from post-traumatic stress, which are, you know, re-experiencing can, you know, dreams of, uh, or suddenly waking to images and sensations of physical and emotional pain and fear. Uh, that's that's definitely uh, a symptom. Another one is depression or anxiety. You know, facing mental phobias, irrational, persistent fear and avoidance, which could lead to you know, overall paranoia and depression. Another is withdrawal. You know, isolating yourself, 
both adults and children who have PTSD, who have solid, normal social lives, can isolate themselves and lose interest in all the things that they're interested in, hobbies, activities, friends, basically lose their passions. Right. Avoidance, which is along you know, this, a similar line, repression, the intentional blockage of memories associated with the past event. Number seven is emotional numbing, to try and numb their feelings, you know, emotional numbing can be physical. It could be also using a drug or substance to get away, you know, right. drinking, getting away from social circles, hyper arousal. You know, that's hypervigilance as we understand it, where you have jitters or fear of common things in life that become now threats because of your hyper arousal, irritability, which you know is common sense, uh, guilt and shame, you know, having the effects that or having the mindset that, where, where you're alive and somebody else has died, you can't rationalize that, that there's guilt, uh, survival guilt that's associated with that. And, you know, what's crazy is if you take all these, you know, outside of war veterans, you know, it's crazy, man. I've experienced this recently, not recently, but over the last couple of years of being out of the military, everybody suffers PTSD in some form. Well, I think, I think an interesting thing that we're talking about here is one, you know, how you define PTSD and then how it relates to service members um, and the expectation of society that somehow they would send their warriors off, right, uh, to experience war and come home and they would be unaffected or unchanged. I mean, ultimately, it's the human experience of going and doing combat, right? Well, obviously, there's traumatic things that happen to civilians, that, you know, as well that could be, you know, diagnosed as a post-traumatic stress disorder. So, I think from both perspectives, it it exists. Obviously, right? We're not denying that, or um, we're not, uh, you know, trying to speak against that. But I think the interesting part about PTSD and service members is, you know, when we talk about ways uh, society can help service members, is not having an expectation that you, you would send young men and women off to combat and that they would be unaffected by what they would see. Yeah, that's a good point. Because when you look at what men and women do for our country, there's a reasonable expectation that if we deliberately send these men and women into harm's way, They're that on the return, yeah. that we would have some kind of system or some kind of protocol or something to help these guys. And gals. Yeah. So the, you know, one of the cool things is, um, you know, I didn't come up with this myself. It, it actually got talked about amongst a, a group of friends that Mike and I both mutually have. And I listened to these guys talk and they had a really, you know, mature, interesting perspective on it. And it was, you know, going all the way back into warrior cultures and basically, you know, whether it was Native Americans, it was Vikings, it was whatever warrior culture they actually you know, the elders in those communities, the expectation is that when they sent their young braves or their warriors off to war, that they would come back changed. That was a known. And, you know, a big part of that was the acceptance when they returned, right? Like Mike was talking about Vietnam. Hey, you know, if you do any research in history, you'll see, you know, there was a big anti-war movement and, you know, ultimately those guys weren't treated very well when they came home, you know, even to the point where they were spit on and ridiculed and all these terrible things that we look at now, I feel like we learned lessons then that, you know, I know in my mind, I was like, I would never 
um, allow that to happen. One, because of my own personal experiences serving, and two, hey, those guys didn't make that decision, um, you know, to go to war with with Vietnam, right? Mike and I didn't declare war against Iraq or Afghanistan, right? There was a certain uh, number of, of events that led up to, to making that happen. Ultimately, if you want to hold anybody responsible for those things, it's politicians, right? Service members raise their right hand and they support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The politicians come together to uh, make the decisions on whether or not they're going to put men and women of our great armed forces in harm's way. So I think a good way of kind of looking at all this is understanding how these people fit in all these different roles, right? But back to you know post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it's a very naive concept to think that you would send your best and brightest away to war and they would come back unaffected. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that, you know, as society is educated, that it takes, you know, it takes a, a period of time of education, of, of active or proactive education in order to get to the point in which civilians who are not in that space or realm understand that these men and women aren't broken, right? but they've lived a different set of circumstances and experiences based on the requirement that, like you said, policymakers made. And we owe not just a debt of gratitude, not just the seemingly uh, conceptual things or ideas or uh, ideologies, but an actual tangible action in which we can take care of these men and women who are coming back that are effective. I, you know, I have, I have a weird, I, I don't know if it's just idea or, or a weird uh, experience with PTSD in the sense that, you know, when it was the time that I got out of the military, uh, where I processed through VA, um, I, I was having issues. I, I think I was having, the, the biggest issue I was having was depression because I was in a situation where, you know, I was at the tip of the spear where I was active. I was a conscious and capable leader and then the next thing you know i'm unemployed and i have nothing what seemed like nothing and so going through the va system and trying to find or identify a means of a solution to that problem was difficult you know i remember my first in processing session with va and i've told this a couple times but i went into this woman's office in texas which Texas is great. The veteran affairs system is, is pretty decent compared to other states. But they were doing construction in the hallway and there was a loud bang right as I walked in the office and I turned around and I snapped my neck to it to identify what it was. And then I sat down in the chair and she looked at me and she said, you're having some issues, I could see. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And she said, basically, you know, you have issues because you're hypervigilant. I said, well, I don't think I'm hypervigilant. I don't think that responding or reacting by turning my neck to a loud noise is hypervigilance. I think that's, for me, a survival mechanism that I, I would proudly maintain or retain. And it's not part of the problem. It's just part of the man that I became. And so that instance with being told essentially that I was broken was difficult because I didn't feel I was broken. And what my coming out of that process, what I've determined after counseling, after seeing a whole bunch of subject matter experts in the field, is that 
at least in my case, it wasn't a case of what I felt was post-traumatic stress because it wasn't individual traumatic events that caused the issues I was having. It was simply transitional issues that I was having. Right. I use the analogy of a war dog and some are offended uh, about this analogy. But when you take a dog and it has a, it is bred for work. You know, you take a Belgian Malinois, for example. Instinctually, it's bred for work. Like human beings, mostly, for the most part, are bred for survival. We're a survival species. We are predisposed with certain enablers in our DNA to allow us to survive. And so then you raise that dog with the intent to kill, to be efficient and effective at destroying whatever comes across on command. That's the same thing that me and you were put through. I mean, we can, we can cut through all the, the bullshit and get to the core of it. That's right. what we did. Now, you take that same war dog who's been going to war for the last, you know, for more than 10 years, longer than any war in history in America, and then you put them in civil society where you're surrounded by a whole bunch of pollutants. <laughs> now you have a Belgian Malinois that's used to ripping other human beings in half. And of course, the bad human beings, and you put them in a, an environment with, with pollutants, with and, you know, the analogy for us is sheep. We have instinctually these things that help us protect civil society. So it's not like we're mass murderers and we come into an environment and we want to rip everybody apart. In fact, it's the opposite. We, we want to protect the, the flock, we, the herd, whatever analogy we use. And that's the sense that I have. So when it comes to things that I deal with as a civilian, like people acting like assholes, people disrespecting other people, people being bullies, people being dumbasses, I equate all those things and the rationale behind a civil confrontation and my confrontation would look very different, would be contrasting. <laughs> if a dude cuts me off, he flicks me off, I might, hell, we had a dude there. <laughs> I might just give him a thumbs up and be like, all right, cool, roll out. But I might just be confrontational because I'm used to immediately uh, squashing that situation. Right. And so transitionally, there is a process in which I have to mend back into civil society. And to me, that is the biggest issue that we have. It's a process. We have a very deliberate process in the military of making somebody a soldier, right? It's deliberate. It has a funding line. Oh, it yeah. has trainers. <laughs> it has doctrine. It's very efficient. It's very effective. You take a human being, you put them through eight weeks of basic training, you put them through seven weeks of infantry, AIT, advanced training, you put them through two years of the qualification course, special forces selection, special forces sniper school, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you mold a human being to be what you want. And now we're going back into civil society and you say, here's your DD-214, yeah. go you, fuck yourself. You get a week. Of, you get a week. You get a week of this is what it, this is what you're going back into. Yeah. Good luck. From buddy. people who don't know what they even <laughs> yeah. they they don't even have their job is to tell you how to get jobs 
and they don't know, you know, they know nothing about transitioning human beings back into civil society. Well, the other thing too is the, you know, the the people that, that Mike and I served around, obviously, you know, and you can look at the military and understand that we're a small percentage of guys that pick to choose that job. So there's a lot of uh, burdens that we bear that go along with, with the job that we chose to do. I think both Mike and I are both uh, extremely accepting of that because I would not have changed. And I know Mike is the same way. We wouldn't have changed uh, what we chose to do for anything, right? Because the, the experience itself, and you'll hear Mike say it a lot, right? Um, an Instagram post, it's like epic, you know, that that ride was one that uh, not a lot of people get to experience. And the guys that we lived around and loved and took care of uh, mutually, right? We all took care of each other. Uh, that bond and experience is something that it just can't be replicated. It can't be faked. There's something special about that. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, again, when we talk about the topic of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, hey, I'm not an expert on that. I can just give you my perspective. Mike gives you his perspective. Uh, I think they're good ones because I think ultimately we've done relatively well in the transition. I mean, still issues, right? Like Mike's talking about, there's different things that we work through every day. Um, but I think, you know, the good thing is that what we've really tried to do is dig through our experiences and try to relate that information to everyone, not just other service members or, you know, a select few uh, people that want to be in special operations, but it's like, hey, how can we literally dig through these experiences and help everybody, right? Because like we talked about, there's there's post-traumatic stress disorder in the civilian world. Obviously, it's in the military. And I think we have there's just a lot to learn from our experiences, and we're excited to share that with people. Yeah, I, you know, I think sharing is caring. <laughs> I Give me a hug, bro. I think, you know, just being being vocal about it, period, and just having open forms of communication, period, is a beneficial thing for society, especially when it comes to mental health issues. I think, the, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast. I was driving somewhere. I was on the highway, which is typically where I get the most work done because I could listen. I could communicate to people, and I'm not bogged down with stuff. But one of the podcasts I was listening to is a woman and her, she was a professional expert in her industry, and she was talking about uh, her child and how she grew up. And she's the author of a really good book, which I can't remember because I'm not going to pretend to try to figure it out, but I'll post it up later. But it, a really good book about resiliency and about coming through tough times. And she was stating that because of these hard times, you know, we talk it in ebb and flows. We talk it in uh, trials, tribulations. But she was able to recover and be a stronger version of herself because of the hardship she went through. And her five-year-old child was communicating to her because she was he was asked in a in a project to to tell a time in which you were challenged. And five five years old, I know. <laughs> I don't know how many five-year-olds are expressing their the times they were challenged. Just it, he's a kid. And so the kid told the teacher when asked that question, I've never been challenged. And I've, you know, I've never had any hardships. And then he went home and then told his mom and said, Hey, you know, I don't have any hardships. How come I don't have hardships? I need a hardship because I want to be able to express 
the overcoming or something that I had to overcome. And what, what occurred to me, and she expressed it a little bit, but what occurred to me is in life, the only people who truly live are the people who experience hardship because they learn. You know, I talk about it in the sense of light, light and dark. Without going into darkness, you wouldn't appreciate the light. And so every single human being, no matter, I, I've met perceived human beings to be perfect, to only turn out to be broken. And what's amazing is the most resilient and outgoing human beings that you've ever met or that you've ever seen in really all of human history are people who faced the most challenges in life, whether it was their childhood. You know, people say there's a statistic or some science behind that the first three years of life, the first three to five years of life will define really uh, your, your overall life like those experiences. If they're traumatic, it will grossly affect the rest of your life. But if you think about people who we, who we follow, people who we look up to, role models, it's the hardships that make them an epic human being because they've lived a life. And I don't think anybody's immune to that. In fact, I would tell you, and I've experienced this personally, that if people put themselves in that light of being perfect, of being not susceptible to different issues in life, then more than likely, the more jaded and twisted they are. I, I appreciate the honesty in the, in the psychology of that, where, whereby we understand as a society, if we can just get over the fact, just like everybody knows that we're all going to die, but nobody wants to talk about it. If everybody just get over the fact that everybody in a way is affected by things that happen in their life. And, and that could be a positive thing. Right. And I think the problem is the, the overarching issue is we look at those things that happen to our lives. And then we look at coming out of those things as a problem. Yeah. Like relating it back to like somebody coming back from combat. You know, maybe the society says, ooh, they're defective now. They're coming back crazy. Yeah, so it's, it's so bizarre to me because we, I've, I've seen it in many instances in civilian life where somebody, for example, they, they try to get therapy and they go to a, uh, a therapy place to get um, isolated treatment. And then they mention that in a circle and then immediately, immediately they're shunned. Like, I can't believe that person yeah. went there. <laughs> I, I can't believe that he went there because he's not that kind of guy. And so there's this uh, maybe overt stigma, stigma right. in society on the surface, right? If you're not perfect. If you're not perfect. But but it's so it, bizarre. It's just like the ocean. Like when you go under the surface, it's where everybody lives. Yeah. And so, and you can float on your sailboat and be cool and be this badass. But everybody knows when you, you know, go back to your home or you get back in your circle and get back in your safe place, you're just as crazy as everybody else. <laughs> So generally speaking, the only issue I have with um, all of it is we're just we're afraid to identify what the reality is. And number two is, especially when it comes to to soldiers, period, soldiers, sailors, Marines, yeah. veterans, yeah. is we treat them like victims, somehow equating their time in service as this traumatic experience where we feel like we owe them sympathy. Right. Empathy, and we feel sorry for them. Right. I'm not into that at all. By the way, obviously, 
uh, Mike and I being together, get a chance to talk about a lot of this stuff and really flesh it out and, and really have some, I think, uh, interesting discussions about it. But I don't want empathy and I don't want sympathy and I don't want you to feel sorry for me because I made the choice to go and do the things that I did. I think, you know, like I talked about earlier, just understanding as a society the, the expectation that any of us would come back and be the same men and women uh, that we were when we left is just an, is not a realistic one. I, I've seen some different types of therapy, stress inoculation, cognitive behavior uh, inoculation or cognitive therapy. There's there's different techniques and procedures on how to uh, make somebody who's dealing with issues, right? The sim- symptoms of the overemphasized PTSD label, right. there's a whole bunch of symptoms that deal in that space. And and the, the my biggest issue with all that is the first thing that any VA healthcare profession as a whole looks at the, the, the uh, affected person as somebody who's broken mm-hmm. and they treat them like a victim, like it's okay. It's okay to feel, feel like you do, you know, you're, you didn't, you didn't have to be there and, and you should, you should feel this certain way. And I think that drives the wrong mentality, the wrong mindset for the person who's trying to get out of that slump, right? Cause like for depression, for example, right? Some people say that people who are depressed are simply uh, obsessed with the fact that they're in their own in their own head, and so they're overemphasizing and overcompensating for all the things that they might say to themselves, like "I suck," "I'm the worst," "I'm not confident," "Everybody's better than me," and then they obsess about that and it becomes this uh, snowball effect of depression. Right. And to get out of that, you have to start vocalizing positive thoughts. You have to get outside of your head. You have to be conscious and do other things that take you out of that space. So I, I feel the same way with the, the victim mentality. When we start people treating people like victims, they start obsessively saying to themselves they're a victim instead of standing up and consciously doing or saying something more positive to keep to pull them out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously the, the post-traumatic stress disorder topic is one that I'm sure Mike and I can spend hours, you know, going on this podcast and talking about all these different things. But so for for me, you know, when we talk about things and, you know, especially on this podcast, Mike and I are relating our experiences and how we perceive things. You know, obviously we're not doctors and, and all these different things, but what we can tell you is from two pretty successful guys in the special operations community and now being civilians is how we work through different things. And I know for me personally, you know, part of that base for me is uh, continuing to do physical fitness. Um, well, yeah, let's break it down. Yeah, so like coping, tangible, coping, right? coping mechanisms that make us seemingly seem to have more resiliency than the average. Right. What are some things that you do? Yeah. Like, so, you know, honestly for me, a uh, big one is still, I still do PT. Hey, I'm pretty banged up from almost serving 20 years uh, in the military. And, you know, a large portion of that was in special operations. And I've talked about it before, um, you know, orthopedically, and I've got a lot of different issues going on, right? So my workouts typically are built around a lot of those injuries, but I still do it. I mean, that's the bottom line. Just from a mental health perspective, I feel like burning off that any kind of negativity or stress or, the release that I get from being in the gym 
um, and working out is, is one, a super important part of that. Another thing is surrounding myself with people that are positive, right? So um, had to, you know, obviously make a big decision to uh, come and work with Mike. I left my job at Fort Bragg um, as a civilian contractor for Special Operations Command and I'm moving my family, you know, we're making all these things, but it's important to me to be around uh, other people that are positive because uh, obviously if you're putting in good, then the output's gonna be good, you know, in simplest terms, if I'm putting in bad, you know, chances are you're gonna be putting out bad. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, awesome effects uh, that are associated with working out, right? Whether it's physiological changes to chemicals that are released, yeah. it's, there's tons of benefits to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. It, everywhere from the things that happen inside the body to, hey, you feel good when you look good, you know what I mean? That may be kind of a superficial way to look at it, um, but I mean, the, there's science behind all that, right? When you stand in front of a mirror, um, and I didn't come up with this concept, actually a buddy of mine, uh, you know, said it during a class when he was teaching and he told all the students, you know, hey, stand in front of a mirror and tell yourself that you're fat, ugly, and stupid for a month, and then get back to me and let me know how that worked out and how your life is going. What's the reasoning, do you think, that uh, we're maybe better built to deal with these issues? It's, it's family. You know, family is an, an, an absolute uh, support mechanism for coping with these kind of issues. How has it affected you? Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, since I've known you, you've been a family man. How has that benefited you by having a, an awesome wife or a stable home situation. Yeah, I mean, so my wife is uh, one of my biggest supporters and has been the support network on the backside that I've always had during my career. Um, she was extremely supportive, never asked me not to take on uh, a role or, you know, an experience or, you know, uh, something else that essentially was going to take me away from home. I was always appreciative of that. And having that support network and her understanding uh, was huge for me because I could come home and it was a safe place and I could be with my children. And she really kept things together. And, um, you know, that was a big deal for me. Yeah. I, you know, I was talking to uh, somebody the other day about relationships and how behind every strong, you know, whether it's a warrior or a special operations guy, you need somebody who's equally or if not stronger mentally to be able to get you through those type types of situations because not only in not only in the mental aspect but even the physical aspect where they're providing you a support network to be able to facilitate the, the difficult things that you're going to go through yeah, absolutely you know the cool thing about mike and i working together is i think we do that for each other as well brotherhood is a, obviously an important Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you're working around guys like that, you know, you're constantly driving each other to be better. Right. So just that environment of itself, it breeds success, which is why it's so attractive, I think, to uh, to, to people to want to be in that community. You know, what I've, and I've, I've talked about this a couple of times, but the, the shittiest thing that I've experienced in transitioning off of active duty is, you know, I've dealt with some issues. Anger will be one of those issues. And, you know, I've always, I've never, I don't think I've been known as a hothead because I don't, I don't think in, in my military career, I think I've probably lost my bearing twice in the military career, once involved like a major hostage rescue operation. So I don't, I think there's times that I didn't go off the handle, um, they were appropriate. 
Um, but transitioning, I've, I've gone off the handle a few times and I don't want, I don't have an expectation that people are going to support that kind of behavior, but I do have a reason why I did have a reasonable expectation that, that no matter the circumstances, that there would be some kind of maybe compassion is the word to that experience. Yeah. And that you would like, if it was a brother, he'd be like, Hey dude, you're out of fucking control. Go and fuck yourself. You're at a 10. Let's bring it to the five. Exactly. Turn on the (laughs) turn on the frequency, the volume a little bit, but then we get back into it. You're still my brother. You're still like a part of my family. And that's the difficult thing I had, especially in uh, relationships that in relationships nowadays, this is obviously my opinion. Everything's so temporary. Right. And p- people are so willing and so easily able to throw away other people. Right. You know, I, and I'm not perfect, obviously, and I've made a lot of mistakes in, in many venues and many different spaces. But that's unfortunate because the best coping mechanism is the commitment that human beings have to other human beings. Right. Whether it's your brothers um, and, and understanding that they would die for you and that they would do anything for you or your family members that right. you know are always going to be there as an anchor of support no matter what. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you said, neither of us are perfect, right? If we brought my wife on to do the podcast, she'd be giggling in the background right we now. We had the censor of the whole <laughs> Yeah, right? Because she put up with a lot of shit over the last 17 years. But um, no, it's a great point. I mean, the people that you keep yourself surrounded with uh, are ultimately going to help you work through those times that, um, you know, you need help with, which is, hey, man, we're our brother's keeper, you know, and your families are there uh, to help do the same thing. I think one of the most dangerous things you can do as a vet if you're struggling with PTSD is isolating yourself and the expectation that, you know, not talking to other people, even if they're civilians, you know, they may not understand uh, but giving people a chance to step into your life and actually be a part of it, I think is a huge part to, I don't know if you want to call it the healing process, but it's like, you know, just being able to process information man, and, and be in a good spot. Yeah. Openly communicate. Communication is key, right? Openly right. communicating. Maybe your feelings are fucked up. You know, maybe, maybe your perspective is skewed and having somebody to kind of analyze that perspective and give you an alternate means of perception yeah, right. could be the best medicine ever. Who knows? Yeah. You, you know, I think it, and I, it, I hate it, but I, I hate the fact that Veteran Affairs thinks that medication is the first answer to a lot of the issues that are going on. I just wish that overall that people would help. I, I think the answer is people helping people. And uh, there's a, you know, and survival, you can analyze it. It's been it's been demonstrated. It's almost science that that human beings need human interaction right. to get through life. And the isolation is only going to exacerbate and amplify all the potential issues that you're having. Right. And then you compound that with drugs, alcohol, depression, anxiety, isolation. You're looking at a recipe for a disaster. Right. It's like all this stuff that piles on to the problem and then it just turns into a giant ticking time bomb. Yeah, it's scary, man. And that's that's a scary stuff. I think one thing that's helped me too and kind of changed my life is is nature. You know, being out in 
open nature with not a lot of distractions where I'm, I'm alone. I'm not isolated because I'm, I'm, uh, you know, intentionally doing this, but I'm alone with my thoughts and able to construct and figure out issues by being conscious in nature, you know, whether it's hiking or observing, that's completely healthy. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's another part of uh, kind of the epic ride that we're on with doing field craft is putting us in environments that, you know, that help us out as well. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really cool. I think, I think nature is a natural healer and I hope that there's, you know, whether it's nonprofits or it's by means on your own that people would seek out nature before they would seek out uh, anything else. What do you think about service dogs and helping out with PTSD? And I know that, you know, there's some different opinions out there on it. And the fact that you have Pearl, um, you know, what do you, what's kind of your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's cool because it kind of leads into this other discussion that we're talking about with uh, uh, the question I got from a DM from Ryan about service, about dogs, period. But I think, you know, it's, an, it's, it's a no brainer that dogs, period, you know, the, the relationship behind dogs and human beings throughout, you know, history of man have, have always been uh, man's best friend yeah. and a, a companion. Yeah. And, you know, getting Pearl has significantly improved my, my life because before, even when I used to isolate myself, that, that was my go-to, like getting the F away from all everybody because I didn't want to deal with people's shit. Yeah. And it was my own internal issue, but having Pearl with me as a companion allowed me to get away and still able to have uh, somebody that, you know, I was like my ranger buddy, you know, like a battle buddy. We're, we're, we're trained in the infantry and special operations to have a, a battle buddy, to have somebody that you can depend on that, that has your six. And, you know, besides my physical disabilities, which are minimal, the emotional support that she gives me is awesome. You know, there is a distinct difference between an emotional support dog and a service dog. My dog is a service dog. Pearl is a service dog. She literally helps with physical disability. I think it's a good point, though, that you're making about emotional support, right? Because I own a dog as well. My dog is not trained in any of that stuff. But hey, man, like it's cool to to chill with your dog. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I remember (laughs) deploying down range and... And guys uh, talking about just they can't wait to get back home with their dog. <laughs> yeah. What about your wife and kids? No, man, no, I'm really good. My dog. dog. <laughs> uh, you know what's funny is every deploy. I mean, I've I got a lot of deployments, but every deployment, I, I almost almost every single one, I had a dog of some sort down range. Mm-hmm. It was Poppy, Bernie, Cowboy, Fred, um, <laughs> all these awesome animals uh, that were part of my life. I'm, you know, I'm a big believer that the way in which a human being treats animals is a way in which uh, they are as a human being and the most disgusting human beings on the planet are those that abuse or hurt animals right because animals don't have the ability to def- to defend themselves and people who do that obviously have some psychological issues but my favorite people were animal lovers yeah and yeah dogs have you know emotional support dogs uh, there's limitations to what they can do as far as travel, where they can go. Um, you could go online right now and get an emotional support certificate and pay a hundred bucks. For service dogs, there's actually not a central, it's not like there's a database for, for service dogs, but you are required by law, the American Disability Act, of having a disability. 
So if it ever came down to it, you're like, oh, I got a service dog, and then you're sued. They're going to come to come down to them seeing if number one, the dog was trained in some capacity because you could self-train your own service dog. Right. But it has to be a deliberate process, a formal process. Right. Yeah, or it, it could be informal, but it has to be have a formal structure. And then uh, whether or not you have an actual disability, which you know, obviously being service connected disabled veterans, we do. Yeah. So yeah, it has has vastly improved my life. And I would say also that dogs, uh, you know, dogs in every, really every, you know, whether it's law enforcement, homeland security, I mean, hunting, they, they play a role, specific role of a man where they enable us to do certain things. Right. And I think when you align animals with helping people, it, it's almost weird, weird because in the last 10 years, you see, you know, stories of animals going to like nursing homes and right. getting with veterans. It's like, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> no shit they help people. They've been man's best friend for yeah. a while. No shit they reduce stress. <laughs> yeah. um, my whole thing is, my whole take on it is I hate people who are so, whether it's businesses or just human beings, period, who are just so turned away from animals playing a role in people's lives. Right. Uh, hey, you can't bring the animal in here. Dude, it's, it's, a, it's a hardware store. Yeah. What is my dog going to do in your hardware store? <laughs> I, I had been turned around, turned away a few yeah. times from that. We've obviously experienced some of that working together and having Pearl with us because she pretty much goes everywhere we go. So Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She's she's my, my battle buddy. So when we're looking at coping, coping mechanisms, you know, we, we talked about a lot. Uh, what are some things outside of, you know, the things that we did in special operations to deal with issues? What are some other things that people can do to help themselves? Like a Joe comes home from the 82nd and he needs to get over an event or potentially get outside of his head right. or improve himself. What are some things that you know, honestly, um, I retired last year from the Army. Um, we've said that before. Um, and I've seen a lot of change in the military up to this point with the stigma of, of saying that you're having some issues and, and it could be associated with PTSD. I think some of the, you know, the basic things is, hey, actually letting a provider know that you've got something going on and then being honest about it and trying to, to work through it. I think when you try to self-medicate with alcohol or drugs, um, it only compounds the problem, right? I mean, if let's just break this down logically. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm drinking a you know a fifth of whiskey a night to try to make this go away. It's unhealthy, right? So, just being an honest broker and who knows ourselves better than us, right? So when we're going through these things that I think Mike and I as as we continue to mature and dig through our experiences is really self-analyzing and understanding ourselves like hey do i do i need help i need to talk to somebody and reaching out i mean there's there's so many different uh avenues on military installations now because it is a big issue and and the military i think in their way is trying to address address some of these mental health issues and try to get people help but i think the first step is you got to be honest with yourself and and go and reach out and ask for it i mean there's there are people that are willing to help but you've got to actually reach out and initiate contact right yeah i i think overall a lot of problem problems that become systemic problems are the ones that aren't communicated the right ones that i'm talking about i i, I, t I tell people and I've, I've actually done this and i was in pakistan as a contractor and i was just dealing with issues because i was 
a torn between a, a civil life of trying to plant roots somewhere and being deployed. And it was just this weird tornado I was in, man. It was, it was shitty. But I remember consciously, I remember reading a lot of self-help books because I wanted to figure out how to get outside of this obsessive thinking. And one of the things that helped me was is something I described and I've heard described as, as getting conscious or being conscious. This is good. And you know, my 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 take on it is the more subconscious that you get in your mind, the more detached from your active conscious thinking, the more further down a rabbit hole you get. So let's say you're you're dealing with an issue and you just let your brain run on autopilot. Well, when your brain is not in a good position or a good spot in your life, it's like controlling, trying to control an airplane that doesn't have the ability to be controlled. You're, you're literally flying at the mercy of where that plane wants to take you. And it's a scary thought because the, the reality is that plane is affected by gravity and it wants to slam you into the ground and destroy you. So how do you deal with that? Well, the more conscious and aware and awake you are, Meaning the more you think about conscious thoughts and, and communicating to yourself through that process, the more in control you become. And then so maybe you don't have power to the airplane. Maybe you don't have the motivation, but you have the ability to control the thought process and, and glide it uh, along the uh, surface of the earth and, and that potentially crash and burn. So what does this look like literally? Well, it could be like you saying, hey, Hey, Mike, get outside of your head. And, you know, it, it's described in history as a, a mantra or um, Zen or, or communicating and meditating to yourself. But you're communicating. You could communicate a word. You could say, stay positive or uh, I'm the shit. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't say I have to take a shit. Because <laughs> yeah. then you'll go to the bathroom yeah. say I am the shit. So if you say, you know, and you stay positive, say like, hey, um, today's going to be a good day. Well, when you're saying that consciously, because you're consciously having to use brain power to say that, you're coming out of the darkness. It's like programming, right? You're like programming. 100%. And, and like I said, you know, using the analogy of flying a plane, uh, doing that literally takes you into light. And now you're able to navigate in light. And... And think about not doing that. If you don't do that, it's like closing your eyes. Now you're trying to fly blind with no control. So stay conscious. The reason why exercise, why being in nature, why, why walking, why doing an activity that requires conscious effort helps is because, just like what I was telling you, um, it's because you're outside of your head. You're not immersed in your own thoughts and anything that takes you into that space and out of the, the negative darkness that you're in is a good, it's a positive thing. That's why conscious communication with other people is beneficial because when you're consciously taking your thoughts and manifesting them into verbalized conversation, you are rationally communicating suppressed shit garbage yeah. and the more of that garbage you can pick up and toss out of your head the more rational you become the path to healing is the more you heal and the faster your path to healing that route becomes a little bit more paved
Yeah, it's interesting, man. Like just the way that you're talking about it, like you typically wouldn't get that, you know, from anybody when you're walking in and, and talking to somebody, right? So um, just the fact that we're kind of discussing how we work through things is one, it's always, I'm always super interested to learn from you. And I think it, that's like a vice versa thing, right? Why we drive each other so well is because we're constantly, we're doing that, you know, we're constantly putting stuff out there and working through it and then driving each other, whether it's business or whether it's our personal lives or anything that we're working through, which is, it's just a cool experience to be a part of. Yeah, I love it, man. I think that's the key to, to staying alive, long, healthy is, is evolving, right? Know, it's growing. Uh, just like we talk in tactics, we talk in life. If you're not growing daily as a human being in this complex world that we live in, then then really you're living uh, you're living dead. I mean, you might as well be. One thing, you know, in closing closing out this episode, me and Kurt have a lot of friends that we've had pass away that have been killed in combat. Uh, you know, accidents, all kinds of crazy shit, but a whole bunch of people that we know that if they were here, given the opportunity to live a full life, they would be saying the same exact things. Yeah, exactly, man. It's like, you know, one of the, I think one of the the best ways that we can honor uh, our buddies is knowing that the sacrifices that they made uh, were for something, right? So Mike and I sitting here and doing all the things that we're doing with Fieldcraft and all the different things that Mike has going on and, you know, just all these opportunities, right. It's like, you know, there's different points in the day and, and there's a reason why I wear this little bracelet with one of the guys that uh, means a whole lot to me that I was teammates with that was killed in action. And it's a, it's something that I look down at and I look at and I consciously think about during the day and I tell myself, Hey man, live this life. Uh, like it's your last day and make it worth living because the dudes that aren't here that paid the ultimate sacrifice, they gave you that opportunity. Don't waste it. I appreciate you guys tuning in. You guys can catch us out on our social media, uh, Soft Survivor, Fieldcraft Survival, or Team Underscore, Team Phil, Team Fieldcraft. I always have <laughs> Kurt uh, Underscore Team Fieldcraft. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Until next time, guys, we'll see you. We'll see you next episode. Stay alert. Stay alive.